Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Hour, Part 1, recorded in May 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Okay, so, I know there's a handout, but I'm going to sort of ignore the handout and just talk about these chapters of Mark. So we have two chapters, which are very detailed. They have a lot going on in them. Uh, Basically, where we left off last time, Jesus was in the temple, and having condemned the temple, as it were, symbolically, and having provoked the opposition of the temple leadership, having um, conquered his opponents verbally through various conversations that he has, exchanges in the temple, he finally leaves the temple at the beginning of chapter 13 of Mark and predicts its destruction. One of his disciples, we're not told who, one of the twelve says, uh, look at these great stones, at these great buildings. Notice the fact that he's talking in the plural buildings indicates that he's not talking about, or at least not exclusively about, the sanctuary. He's talking about the whole temple compound that was built by Herod the Great. Uh, Jesus says, do you see these buildings? Uh, do you see these stones? Uh, truly, I tell you, there will there will not be one stone upon another that is not overturned, overthrown. And with that, Jesus announces the temple's destruction, having left it for the last time. Well, again, this prediction, this um, pronouncement, probably doesn't register any deep emotional chord in us because, again, we don't live with a temple. We don't live our faith centered around a building. For Jews, this is of immense importance. For Muslims, too, who, all, who still have this sense of praying in the direction of a place, of there being a physical place in the world through which uh, a relationship with God ultimately filters. Uh, for, for us, that is Jesus, right? Which, who is mobile, right? <laughs> He's not pinned down to any one place. So when we hear about the destruction of the temple, it might not mean to us what it meant to Jesus's first hearers. Now, of course, the hearers are just the disciples at this point. And so uh, Jesus reconnoiters with the inner circle, the first four disciples, James, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He goes back up to the Mount of Olives, which is where he's been hanging out during the, uh, during the times when he's not in the temple, and he sits upon the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem. The, the Temple Mount, where he's been doing all of his stuff, is on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and there's, it's on a ridge that descends into a deep valley. And on the other side of that valley is the Mount of Olives, so it's on the eastern side. In the Old Testament prophetic book of Zechariah, which is significant to Mark's story because that's the, uh, the book that has the, the triumphant entrance of the Davidic monarch, that Jesus used as his model for entering Jerusalem. In that same book where it speaks of God defending Zion, defending Jerusalem against the nations that are opposed to him, it says that God will defend 
Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So by sitting upon the Mount of Olives as the setting for what's going to follow, Jesus is sort of positioning himself in that whole story of God defending his city, defending his temple, and defending his people. However, the message is not one of defense of the temple, but rather the destruction of the temple. The defense, the victory, will come later. Uh, What we have in chapter 13 of Mark is what scholars call, um, rather wordily, the eschatological discourse. And uh, eschatological uh, is a Greek word. It comes from the word eschatos or eschaton. The eschaton is the technical term in Greek for the last days or the end, as Jesus refers to it, basing himself on the language of Daniel. Daniel, that book of the Old Testament, which we know is terribly important for Mark's way of imagining Jesus' identity because Jesus is the Son of Man, uh, who in Daniel is the one who signifies the coming of God's kingdom into the world, replacing all the other kingdoms that have oppressed people and victimized people. In the book of Daniel, uh, the seer, Daniel, is told of the end, or the end of days. Uh, Now, we have to remember that this end, uh, although it is imagined in terms of it's it's only an it's not really the end of the world the way maybe sort of modern fundamentalists might conceive of a kind of cosmic destruction because there's nothing about cosmic destruction in Daniel in Daniel the end of days is the end of the days of empires the end of the days of kingdoms that abuse human dignity that 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 stand in the place of god like the pharaoh or the assyrians or the babylonians or the Greeks, you know, whoever it might have been in history that has uh, committed evil against human beings, that, that the end of their days is what Daniel is speaking of. And following the end of those days is a kingdom that will have no end, the kingdom of God in, in the language of Jesus. Um, that kingdom is signaled by, in, in Daniel's prophecies, is signaled by a great catastrophe that comes upon the world uh, which is um, experienced as a great destruction. Tribulation is one of the the sort of the modern terms that's used to describe this, but use whatever term you like. Um, Following this great uh, unsettling of things, we hear of the resurrection of the dead, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame, depending on their actions, depending on their actions during the, 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 the time leading up to this. That's Daniel's sketch of the end of days. It's the end of empire, the end of the kingdom that God's kingdom is replacing. Well, this is sort of the framework for this, what Jesus talks about. He talks for a whole chapter. He rarely talks this long in Mark. Um, But how does this start? Well, he's on the Mount of Olives, standing opposite the temple, looking right at the temple whose doom he has just pronounced. And the disciples ask, when will these things be? Uh, or what will be the sign that these things, that all these things are about to be accomplished? It's interesting they say all these things when Jesus has only said one thing is going to happen. But of course, the whole chapter is a whole list of things that are going to happen. So in a sense, the question begs the question. So the inner circle, the first four disciples of Jesus ask for special revelation, as it were. And they've been in this circumstance before. You remember before or right at the beginning of Jesus's journey, they went up to a mountain. Notice they're on a mountain here too. And uh, they were given these 
three or these four, I think it was three at that point, were given special information, right? The divine voice spoke, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So here again, they get inside information. The ultimate insiders get inside information. When will this be? Before Jesus answers them, he actually says, be careful that no one leads you astray on this question. So it opens with a note of caution, the sense that it is easy to misunderstand this uh, expectation of the end, the end of empire, the end of all that stands in the way of God's kingdom. And he says, many people will come after me who will try to deceive you. They say, look, there's the, there's the Messiah. No, look, there he is. Don't believe them, he says. Um, he also says, when terrible things happen in history, don't worry. This is not yet the end. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation or kingdom will rise against kingdom. So he speaks of sort of human conflict, war. He also speaks of natural disasters, uh, but, but preeminently of war. He says, when this happens, do not worry. This must happen, but it is only the beginning of the birth pangs. And a final warning he gives at the introduction to this long disquisition. He first he says, don't, don't let anyone lead you astray. Secondly, he says, uh, when you see things happening, don't worry. This is only the beginning of, of the end, as it were. Finally, he says, be prepared for persecution. Be prepared to endure persecution for my name's sake. You will be hated by all on account of my name, he says. Even your own children will deliver you up to death. So this whole notion of, of even the family, the community being torn asunder uh, and of, of his followers suffering persecution because they identify themselves with him. So clearly Jesus has in view, or at least Mark, as the person putting this together, has in view some future history. In fact, Jesus says, in fact, before the end comes, the good news must be proclaimed to all the nations, to the world, right? We see that in the book of Acts sort of being narrated. So it's not going to happen yet. But then he says, uh, in those days, the days of the end or near end, um, when you see something, I'm going to give you a clear sign, says Jesus, when you see the abomination of desolation, it's a really tongue twister there, the, uh, the desolating abomination, the bad thing, or actually, in Mark's Greek, the bad person, standing where he ought not to stand, then you'll know that these things are, are coming to a conclusion. And at this point in, in the, the story, Mark, the narrator, steps out for the very first time and he addresses the readers directly. This is the only time the narrator interrupts the narrative and addresses us. The readers are hearers. Now, he's interrupted the narrative before, back in chapter 7, when Jesus was talking about the source of defilement. And uh, Mark says, as narrator, he was declaring all foods clean. But he, even then, he didn't say, you readers... Here, he says, when you see, when Jesus says, when you see the, the, the abominating desolation standing where he ought not to stand, interruption, Mark says, let the reader understand. Let the reader know what Jesus is speaking of. In other words, whatever Jesus meant or whatever Mark thinks he means, he thinks that his audience, his readers, know what Jesus is talking about, that, that this is an experience that they 
that is either so imminent that they understand what he's talking about or that they have actually experienced it. Now, this language about the end and about uh, the abominating desolate, this all comes from the book of Daniel, and it has a clear historical referent. It refers to the desecration of the Jerusalem temple by the Greek king Antiochus, who persecuted the Jews in the year 167 to 164 B.C., and the altar that, uh, that this king placed in the temple, rededicating it to a pagan god, the author of Daniel refers to this as the desolating abomination. Um, the other historical accounts of this event, which we get in the books of the Maccabees, use the same language. So Jesus is referring to an historical event that his disciples would have understood, but he's implying that that same situation or something like it is going to mark the end of days. So it's something that has to do with the temple, and it's something that has to do with a person standing where he ought not to stand. Well, scholars have speculated what Jesus could possibly refer, be referring to, what Mark could possibly be thinking of, and there are a lot of candidates. Um, for example, in, in the year 40 or thereabouts, uh, the Emperor Caligula, this is so after Jesus' death, the Emperor Caligula sought to put a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple that he might be worshipped as a god. The Jews wouldn't put up with it, and fortunately Caligula died. He was assassinated before he could implement this plan. But you have a statue, an idolatrous statue of a Roman emperor being placed at the center of God's sovereignty in the temple. Could that be what was being referred to? Maybe. Uh, another possibility is that uh, this is a reference to the war that led to the destruction of the temple. Uh, at the conclusion, when the temple was burning down, we're, we're told by the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, Titus, uh, the future emperor, the, the general who was in charge of the destruction of the temple, uh, he walked into this area. Um, but, uh, so that might be a reference to the destruction of the temple. Uh, but people have also suggested, well, if, if Jesus is using as the analogy to this, whatever's going to happen, if he's using as his analogy Antiochus's desecration of the Jerusalem temple two centuries earlier. And that was not a split-second event, nor an event that had been aborted, as in Caligula's attempt to put his statue there. Surely we're dealing with a condition, not an individual event, but a, a circumstance that could be drawn over several years. Of course, it was three years, approximately, that this desolating altar was there in the temple um, back then in the second century B.C. So, if Jesus is using this to describe what he's talking about, perhaps he's talking about something, an ongoing state of affairs. And so people have speculated, well, maybe this is again about the war when the temple was occupied by a, uh, by a violent faction of the Jewish defenders who spilled blood in its precincts, perhaps. Uh, you know, you, could, you can speculate till the cows come home. But in any case, what I want to focus on here is the fact that this is something contemporary with Mark's audience. He, he assumes they know what he's talking about specifically, right? And they, 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 know, they know what it originally refers to, but they know that Jesus is referring to something in Jesus' own future, right, after the year 30 or more or less. So it's very likely that this is somehow connected with the destruction of the temple. So he says, when you see this happening, let all in Judea flee to the hills, flee to the mountains. So again, it's very clear that what Jesus is talking about is a catastrophe that overcame Judea. Look for catastrophes that overcame Judea? <laughs> the war, 66 to 70. It's a good fit. 
But in any case, what we want to focus on right now is the overall scenario that Jesus is projecting. He warns his followers, it's not, it's not just anything that is going to indicate the coming of the kingdom. It's the worst possible catastrophe that could happen in the world. He says, in fact, since God created the world, there will not be a tribulation, a, a, a catastrophe as bad as this one that I'm describing. Well, again, for Jews, a Jewish uh, audience, that would be pretty much about as catastrophic as, as you could get, the loss of the temple, the devastation of the land, and all that. But the key thing is that when Jesus ends his discussion, he doesn't end it with this with this catastrophe. He says, there's before the catastrophe, which is sort of where they're living now, there's the catastrophe, and then there's after these days. So there's before, during, and after. That's basically Jesus's scenario for the end of empire. And what does the end of empire look like? It doesn't actually look like uh, God making war on Rome or anything like that. Rather, it looks like the cosmos itself, creation itself, collapsing, imploding in on itself the sun not functioning, the, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from the heavens. This is all symbolic language to talk about the undoing, the complete collapse of the created order, which is exactly the sort of thing you might expect if you see the temple as the center of the created order. Right? The temple collapses and eventually all of creation implodes. Um, Again, we don't need to read this literally. This is all symbolic language from the prophets. And the main message for us might be, the way we might translate this into something intelligible to us, um, is that the entirety of creation, of God's creation, has been undone so that God can now step in definitively and rectify it all. And that's exactly what Jesus' story ends with, is then they will see they being whoever's around at that time, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power, and he will send his angels to, the, to, the, uh, the, to all corners of the cosmos and gather his people to himself. It's a very brief description, but it's one that is fully in accordance with all the ways that Jesus has described the kingdom up until now. Again, the Son of Man, that reference to himself as the figure in Daniel, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's how Daniel describes the end of empire being replaced by the kingdom that will have no end. And the only descriptive element in this is the gathering, the gathering of all those who have declared allegiance to the Son of Man, who have believed in the gospel. They are all being gathered together to be the centerpiece of the new creation. It's very interesting. You know, my students always think that there's a pie in the sky. Right? They, they think that the goal of, of creation is to leave creation, escape creation, so that you can go and live in heaven and play a harp. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth as far as the Bible, and I would argue that as far as the church teaching is concerned. Um, we do indeed go to heaven, but heaven is a temporary place until God restores the whole of the cosmos, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. You, you don't have that described in great detail here, but uh, what we do have is this notion that um, the, the, the end of empire is marked by the reversal of all the evils it has brought. The evils of sin are now reversed. Creation is renewed. Right? We sing this. We sing this quite frequently in Mass. Renew the face of the earth. That's what 
the kingdom of God looks like, not escaping the earth, not blowing it up and going somewhere else. It's restoring the face of the earth. This is what happens when the Son of Man comes in power. Okay, so that's the scenario. Fairly primitive and in some ways confusing scenario, the way Jesus depicts it. If you want to read a more elaborate version, read the book of Revelation, same basic scenario. But uh, if you want to read a shorter, simple version, read Paul, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Both his letters to Thessalonians have a very, a very early um, way of imagining what the kingdom of God coming in power looks like. But when will this all be? Right? That was the question that his disciples asked him. He says, this generation, this generation that he's talking to will not pass away before all these things are accomplished. Heaven and earth might pass away, but my words will not pass away. That is to say, I'm telling you the God's honest truth, all this will happen in this generation. And he actually said something very similar at the other mountain that he was talking to the disciples on, right? Uh, actually, right before he took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, some of you standing here will not die before the kingdom of God comes in power. That same language of in power. Well, we all know that we have to <laughs> read this with a grain of salt, or at least with with a, a more sophisticated um, apparatus of interpretation, because we're still here. That generation passed long ago. Well, you want to argue that that generation means 2,000 years and more? That would make the end longer than most of human history. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to understand, first of all, that Jesus is speaking to that audience. He also, by the way, when he says, it will all come to pass in this generation, he also says, but as for the hour, the precise time, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, only the Father. This is something you find elsewhere in the New Testament. I don't know, says Jesus. Now, that also, that raises an interesting theological question. Was Jesus omniscient? Did he know everything? Well, we would say he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And if God knows everything, then surely Jesus had to know everything. Okay, well, but Jesus is human, like us. In fact, letter of the Hebrews, right? He says, Jesus was like us in all ways, except for sin. Now, here's a quiz question. Uh, is not being omniscient a sin? Do you think the fact that we don't know everything, is that a sin? How many people think it's a sin that you're not, that you don't have God-like knowledge? Yeah, it's part of being human. In some ways, it's constitutive of being human that we are not, we don't have an infinite knowledge. We have a finite perception of the world. Uh, we have a finite beginning and end of life. We can't know everything. And Jesus himself says, neither did I. Now, we're talking about the earthly Jesus here. Maybe the heavenly Jesus knows everything. Okay, but we're talking about the earthly Jesus who undergoes, in John's theology, all of the limitations of the human condition. Right, in John... Jesus is constantly saying, I speak whatever I hear the Father tell me. It doesn't say that the Father tells me everything. He says, I speak whatever I hear him say. So in, other words, in the New Testament, especially in Mark, all descriptions of the end, all the descriptions of when will the kingdom come in power, uh, are ultimately not about timetables. And they're not, about, they're not discredited by the fact that we're still here. In fact, if you want to read the uh, full explanation of that, read 2 Peter. Second Peter is basically a response to this problem that we have since we're living after that generation. How 
could the promise that Jesus gave, and uh, how could that be true if we're still here? Now, that author of Second Peter was not talking about Jesus' words. He was talking about Paul's words. But again, Paul is the earliest author of the New Testament. He, this is center to, central to his theology. We will not all be dead when this happens, he says. Well, he was clearly wrong. The way that the author of Second Peter deals with it, he says, well, God gave, Paul spoke according to the understanding that was given to him, understood by God. God didn't give him full understanding, but he gave him what he wanted to give Paul so that Paul could teach the truth of salvation. And the truth of salvation that Paul taught with regard to the end is the same truth that Jesus teaches in Mark. You don't know the hour. You can't know the hour. Therefore, don't try to know the hour. Stay awake. That is the truth of salvation. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Which means, not literally don't go to sleep because we would be dead, uh, but rather, as you live your life, you live it with a sense of vigilance, of expectation, but not in the sense of, you know, if it doesn't come tomorrow, I won't believe it. You live with a sense of urgency that the kingdom of God is drawing near even now. And therefore, we must be vigilant. We must live with urgency. Now, if Jesus, if God were to tell Jesus, you know, it's going to be a little more than 2,000 years, you better tell him that. Well, guess what? If Jesus were to tell them, you know, um, let's say 3,000 years, you know, the end of days is 3,000 years. If you were to tell that to his disciples, would that would, th- would they take the command to urgency and vigilance seriously? No, there would be no point. <laughs> they, they, could, they could lay back. They say, you know, 3,000 years, wake us up. You know, that's not how you talk. That's not how you teach. If you want to teach the urgency of what the kingdom of God means. Uh, so however we want to deal with this incongruity of Jesus saying it's going to end in the next 40 years or so, and it doesn't, We have to keep ourselves focused on the point, be vigilant, stay awake, which is a lot harder than what a lot of, um, you know, evangelicals do these days about writing books about how many, you know, when when the world will end, you know, uh, every catastrophe that happens, oh, this is it, you know, oh, we were wrong. No, we weren't really wrong. We just misinterpreted something. You know, this has been going on for, for several thousands of years, folks, and it's not helpful. In fact, it's usually counterproductive. Jesus told them that. 2,000 years ago, and people still don't listen to it. Be vigilant. Stay awake. Because you don't know when the master of the house is coming back. It could be at evening, or at, uh, or, or at midnight, or at cock crow, or at dawn. You don't know, so stay awake. I say this to everyone, he says, to not just to his disciples there, but to everyone, he says. Stay awake. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.